Thank you, Rick. I gave you a workout there today, didn't I? <laughs> I'd say I'm sorry, but it's the Word of God, so I can't really, can't really apologize for that. So um, this is going to start out a little bit like an Advent sermon, although Advent starts next week. And I am going to do an Advent series. How about that? So, haha, just break from Acts a little bit and, uh, and uh, get into the Advent spirit. But, uh, you know, there's something, um, there's something about the birth of Jesus that... Uh, when you think about it, it could, it's, it could have been easily missed if, uh, if it were not for just certain factors, right? If you didn't have the star, if the star hadn't been up in the heavens to draw the, to, to draw the magi, or um, I don't know, if, uh, if there hadn't been like the angelic host and the angel proclaiming that Christ was born and then the shepherds going and all of that. You know, were it not for those big moments and then Herod wanting to kill the, all the kids in Bethlehem, it would have just... You know, it would have not been that noticeable. Unlike the Hallmark cards, Jesus did not have like a halo around him as a baby. That or, and the animals, as far as I know, did not talk in the night that Jesus was born, or any any of those accretions that have grown up. He would have just grown up uh, as a as a child, and people wouldn't have noticed him until he had stepped into ministry. In Acts today, we're looking at Paul's incarceration at Caesarea, the arrival of a new governor after two years of imprisonment. Uh, It's a guy named Festus that comes and takes the place of Felix. So another one of those times in the Bible when you get sound-alike kind of names, and you're like, which one came first? Was Felix first, then then Festus. But uh, anyway, we see in verse 19 that there's this this high point that, that passes so quickly and so... It's so much of an aside almost, like a parenthesis, that, that we might miss it. But, but as he's talking to the Jews, uh, he's explaining, or I'm, uh, well, Agrippa, I should say, and he's talking about the, the, uh, the hearing that he had with Paul. He says, rather they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Ho-hum. Do you notice how he just sort of drops that in? Like we notice it, hopefully we notice it, but he says it just so, so much in passing, like, ah, oh, that's you know, barely a curiosity, barely a, a matter to, it just had, you know, just weird religious things and some guy that was dead but supposedly is alive. And yet, yet that is the most important thing of all. What is our hope today? What is our hope? What, you, said, you were talking about the gospel earlier. It is the gospel our hope is Christ. But Paul says very clearly that our hope in Christ would be no hope at all were it not for the fact that he rose from the dead. It gets to the heart of the gospel. And so as we look at this today, this little truth, this little truth that just kind of sneaks its way in there, um, the easily overlooked good news is that Jesus died and lives again. That's, that's easily overlooked. We're going to, speaking of overlooking uh, or looking over very quickly, we're going to cover this passage uh, in record time. It's going to take less time than it took uh, Rick to read it probably, but we're going to go over that. And uh, th- that wasn't a slam on Rick, by the way. He read it as fast as he could have. But uh, we're going we're gonna to cover the narrative. That's why you've got that big section before the points start in. We're going to cover that first as we sometimes do. And then we're going to kind of draw the application, if you will. Does that make sense? Tracking with me? Okay, two years have passed. Paul was at 
Caesarea, under Roman confinement, Felix, you remember Felix, Felix was kind of a mixed bag at best, you know, he was, uh, he was not the best guy, uh, not the best governor, and he gets removed, they take him, they, the, the text doesn't tell us, we know this from history, that he was removed, he had to face a kind of trial in Rome for badly handling some stuff between the Jews and the Greeks there at Caesarea. Festus arrives on the scene, he's a much better governor. Uh, much more, you, you can see this both in the history of what we know and then you can really see it coming through the text. He's more industrious. He arrives, he gets on the ball, he gets on the stick, he gets to lay of the land. You can see that he's a competent administrator. Uh, sadly for him, he died in 62 AD, so he didn't last very long in, in the office. But he seems like a person that's going to give Paul a fair shake. When Festus gets to his headquarters in Caesarea, and this goes to the idea that he was a good administrator, he spends a few days in Caesarea, but then immediately he goes down to Jerusalem. Now, why does he do that? Well, he's the governor of Judea. Who's he going to be dealing with as he seeks to govern the people of Judea? He's going to be working with the Jewish leaders. So he's going to go and he's going to get the lay of uh, the land. He gets there. They probably went over a great many things that Luke doesn't um, record. But what we find out is, is there's a sticking point that they are still obsessed with. After two years of really probably not having to deal with Paul at all. You know, he's in Caesarea. What are, why are they even thinking about him by this point? And yet, the, the, like the chief foremost thing on their mind is they want to get rid of Paul. It says, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him, he meaning Festus, that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning to ambush and kill him on the way. Now, it might be lost in the grammar, but I think they're actually stop say, they, they stop saying this stuff out loud uh, right at that little break, at that little... <laughs> I don't think they said, because we want to ambush and kill him on the way. I think that part, Luke tells us, that was, that was in the back of their mind. That's what they wanted to do, and we, we know that from, uh, from various ways. But um, when a teacher starts uh, his or her career... Um, or in a new classroom, what is the standard sort of recommendation that they tell teachers? And uh, by the way, I, I can't speak to sports very well, but I come from a long line of teachers. In my family tree, you, you throw a stone, you're going to hit a teacher, and, uh, and we usually do. But, um, but what is it they always tell teachers in their first year? They, 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 what? Oh, yes, I, I, you know, and that, I, I, I didn't have that, that phrase in my mind, but that's, that's exactly where I was going with that. Like, you come in, you want to be fair, you want to let the, the students know that you're going to give them a good shake, and if they do good work, you're going to reward that, and so on and so forth, but you don't, don't, you don't smile till Christmas, you don't, you don't let them see any area of weakness, am I right? That's the, that's the, and, and, don't you get the idea as you read this with Festus that there's sort of that first-year teacher thing going on there? Like he gets there, he wants to do the Jews a favor. He wants to build rapport. He wants to, you know, have a quid pro quo, get them trusting him, do them, do them a solid so they in turn. But at the same time, he doesn't want to just roll over for them. He could have given them what they wanted, which was Paul's head on a platter. He could have just sent Paul there. But see, that would have displayed a kind of weakness. That would not have shown him to be in control, nor would it have been handling Roman law the way he should. Look, this is what it says. Um, Let the men of authority among you go down with me 
And if there's anything wrong about this man, let them bring charges against him. So give, give Felix, uh, Felix Festus credit. He's on the job. He's tending to business. He's a problem solver. He seems to want justice. He's a competent administrator. He's going to take care of this, but he's not going to simply roll over. Are you getting a flavor for this of what, what's going on? And this is good for Paul. This, again, this is evidence of the sovereignty of God, uh, God's providence in Paul's life, that it's not somebody that's coming in here that's just willing to turn Paul over to them. So they get back to Caesarea. On the next day, Festus convenes a, a session of the tribunal. Paul is brought. Many of the Jewish leaders are there. They're ready to take him apart. It looks very ominous. The way Luke portrays this, it feels like... I, you know, back in the day, really back in the day, like 100 years ago, the Bible editions would have like, kind of like woodcut illustration, almost woodcut illustra- lithographic illustrations in them. You can almost picture one of those with Paul in the middle and these people surrounding them. Or if, if that doesn't do anything for you, have you ever seen a nature film? You know, never seen a nature film. Uh, usually in those nature films, uh, you will have that moment where, uh, and now the prey is surrounded by the predators and, uh, you know, whatever those happen to be. You just insert whatever names you want there. It's a wildebeest, it's lions, whatever the case may be. And they surround and they're, they're looking, they're watching, they're waiting. That's Paul. He's standing there in the middle and the, and, and the Jewish leaders are surrounding him. You know, it's usually bad news for the prey in cases like that, almost universally, unless the prey is honey badger, because honey badger don't care. Honey badger don't care. Honey badger will make it. Uh, but, uh, and Paul's kind of that honey badger, the, we, which I've said before, but I, I just love the illustration, so I'm going to keep saying it. But yeah, he launches defense. He's, he's smooth. He's cool as a cucumber. He just tells them, it says, Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. Paul is tough, he's concise, he's clear, he has the truth on his side. And we know this, we know that what, what, what's being said here is true. Paul didn't go up to Jerusalem in order to create some kind of furor. He didn't take, uh, you know, um, Greeks into the temple as, as they had suggested. He wasn't guilty of that. He didn't get up on a soapbox and preach against the law of the Jews. He didn't go there to attack the Roman government. In no way, shape, or form was he guilty of any of the charges they were bringing against him, and he's good at making his defense. Festus, however, is looking for a win. Ideally, he wants a win. He's probably wanting a win-win scenario. On the one hand, he wants to show the Jewish people that he can work with them. He wants to do them a favor, the text tells us. At the same time, he represents Rome, and he can't just throw a Roman citizen under the bus. That doesn't, that doesn't go over well at all, does it? So he's kind of stuck in between a rock and a hard place, but he's a smart guy, and you can see the wheels turning. He thinks to himself, ah, what if I just could talk Paul into turning himself over? See, then it's not me throwing Paul under the bus. I'm not forcing the issue. Paul is the one making the decision. He's willing to go up to Jerusalem and be tried, and then the Jews are happy with me, and so on and so forth. He's he's going for that kind of win-win. Meanwhile, Paul understands that if this were to happen, he's, he's dead. He's toast. At this point, Paul's backed into a corner. Uh, Jesus told us, the disciples, that we are to be as, do you remember, innocent as... Doves, yes, we all know how innocent doves are. 
Uh, and as wise as serpents, people. Yeah, do you, I, I, have I lost you? As wise as serpents. And Paul, Paul, it, Paul knows it, Christ does not require Paul to throw himself on a grenade here. Paul does not have to concede at this point. Paul has one last trump card, which we've seen him play, and it's the whole Roman citizenship card that he's played before. We saw that at Philippi. We saw that in Jerusalem. And now he's going he's to use a right that is available to him as a Roman citizen. It says, but Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there's nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. Festus. <laughs> That's kind of pointed, isn't it? No one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. And that is a right that a Roman citizen had at this time period, that if, if you were in a, in a situation where you didn't think you were getting justice, you could appeal. It was called the uh, provocatio. Every time I wrote it in word, it kept trying to change it to provocation because it's just one letter off, but provocatio. And it, it was that right to say, hey, I want this bumped up. I want it to be heard by Caesar. In the NFL, which I'm not a big follower of the NFL, as you know, but in the NFL, uh, a coach, from my understanding, has a, a, a little red flag they can, they can toss, right, which is kind of like a, uh, hey, I'm making an appeal on a call. Am I getting that right? Close to right? Yes. And, and he's not given a limitless supply of these. I think, what, how, does anybody know the total number? Two? I'm hearing two. You're saying three. Got two once, going once, good three, three going. Okay, two or three. He's got a very limited number of these, right? So I don't know how many total calls there are in the course of a game, but he can't just use this willy-nilly. He can't just every, you know, whip stitch just yank that thing out because he doesn't like a call. He waits until his back is against a wall, until it's critical. And then, then he throws that, and then he, he makes the appeal. And that's kind of where Paul is at. Paul is at that point where it's, it's, his life is on the line. If he doesn't say something, he knows and I think we all know that Festus, if he makes the decision to send Paul to Jer- if he says, you know what, I'm going to send you to Jerusalem, he's not going to back down. Like, we're at a critical juncture. This is going to go one way or the other. And so Paul, seeing no other way, appeals to Caesar. Yeah. And, and Festus confers with his, he's got like a council. He's got a group of advisors. They say, yeah, he, he appealed to Caesar. I think you're up against it here. I think that's the law. You better do it. And, he, and so he comes back. You, know, you appeal to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. So we're about midway through the, the course of, of this passage now. And now we get introduced to two additional players, which will come in next time uh, more. But it's Agrippa, Agrippa the king, and his sister Bernice. It says, verse 13, Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. All right, so Agrippa, you may be on to this already, but Agrippa was one of the Herods. Do you ever sigh when you even hear the word Herod? Because you know there's this intricate, you know, group of people all that had the name Herod this, Herod the Herod Antipas, Herod Agrippa the one, Herod Agrippa the sec, so on and so forth. Um, well, okay, let me, let me put this into context. This is Herod the Great's great-grandson. It's Herod the Great's great-grandson. It's actually a guy named Herod Agrippa II. His father 
is the guy that had James, the, the brother of John, put to death. Remember, the first, the first martyr among the apostles was James, the, Lord, uh, the brother of John, and, and Herod Agrippa I had him put to death and tried to put Peter to death and ended up, if you'll recall, being eaten by worms. That's the guy. That's this guy's father. Agrippa I had amassed almost the entirety of Herod the Great's kingdom. Herod Agrippa II, not so much. He had a much smaller rule. However, within his smaller kingdom that he oversaw, he had been given the role of, um, they called it curator of the temple. Curator of the temple, meaning that he had control over things that happened in Jerusalem. And so he had a unique perspective. He was actually a practicing uh, Jew, although he was of Edomian descent. He, he, he practiced the Jewish religion uh, to a point. When Rome came in and destroyed Jerusalem, guess whose side Herod Agrippa uh, went with? Yeah, he, he stuck with Rome. Smart guy. Anyway, the backstory uh, of these people is very, very twisted. Bernice, who do you think Bernice is? It says Agrippa and Bernice. You would assume what? His wife, right? No. The, Ber- Bernice is actually his sister. However, and this is embarrassing, from history itself, we know or that the rumor was that he was, she was more than a sister to him. And I'll just leave it at that. But that was the rumor on the street. That was what people believed at the time. And she, she went from there. Next, she ended up being the, the mistress to, um, to a man by the name of, uh, of Titus. And, and he, Titus was the uh, general that ended up destroying Jerusalem. So how about that? Twisted. It's just a twisted, weird uh, situation. What we get... Um, the backstory, the backstory of these people is just, just crazy. Anyway, what we get then is Festus explained Paul's saga to Agrippa. It says he laid the case before the king. And I'm not going to go, so I'm going to cut, cut this short because what ends up happening in just different words is that Festus explains exactly pretty much what happened in verses 1 through 12. So we can kind of leapfrog over some of this. But he makes it clear that the Jews wanted a sentence of condemnation against Paul. They wanted him dead. And yet what he ends up saying is, I listened to what they had to say. There was nothing evil there that they actually accused him of, at least not for a Roman. He didn't hear anything that he thought the guy should be put to death for or found guilty of. But then he says what it really had to, it boiled down to a bunch of stuff about their religion. And I'll read verse 19 again. We read it earlier. But look at this. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead but whom Paul asserted to be alive. The thing that we, we do learn from Festus' versions of, a version of event is this, that among the other things that Paul was speaking about, which Luke hasn't really told us this, he hasn't filled this in, but what we know from Festus is that Paul was proclaiming that Christ was risen from the dead. He then relays that he offered to send Paul to Jerusalem. Paul appealed um, to the emperor, and, uh, and at this point, Agrippa's like, I want to talk to this guy. And, Fe- and Festus says, okay. And that's where the text ends. We'll, we'll, you'll talk to him tomorrow. So we have the big picture. Go back, though, to the, to the point of the message that I gave you at the beginning. The easily overlooked good news uh, of, is that Jesus died and lives again. And what struck me in this passage when I was looking, how do I preach this passage? What struck me was we got all of this 
intrigue, all of this drama, all of the machinations of yet dynasties like the, like the Herodian dynasty, you got the Romans, you got the, 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 all of this stuff in this, this backstory, you got a new guy coming in trying to make his, a name for himself and do the right thing and, and so on. And so, but in the midst of that, just parenthetically, comes this truth. Oh yeah, this Paul guy says that this Jesus who died, you know, the one that we put to death, that he's alive. And therein, all of history changes its course. We would not be using names today in Great Bend, Kansas, like Festus, Agrippa, Bernice. We wouldn't know who those people were. We wouldn't care or remember them were it not for this weird little parenthetical truth that a man named Jesus died and rose again. That's the good news. The good news is that, but the good news is not political. The good news is not political. Our hope isn't in politics, in case you hadn't realized that yet. <laughs> now, Paul is able to use the politics, and this is the, I want you to see this. Like Paul is a political animal in some respects. He's able to use that to his advantage. He, uh, um, when push comes to shove, he is a Roman citizen, and he, the, the only way that he's going to live to fight another day is in, he has to use the political tools that are at his means. We've seen how he's set the, the, among the Jewish people the Pharisees against the Sadducees, and here he, he makes this appeal to, to the emperor, which is his right to do. Some people think that politics is inherently evil. How many think that politics is inherently evil? Nobody wants to raise your hand at this point. Well, okay, so, so here's the thing. Here's the thing. Um, I don't think that's quite accurate, biblically speaking. There is a common grace that God works in society. Romans 13 is sort of the example of that, meaning as imperfect as it is and as much sin as there may be within the government, it is better to have government than to have anarchy. Like, we need that. The, the, we need government in order to punish the evildoer and so on and so forth. Now, some, some regimes, we'll call them that, become further and further, you know, uh, 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 dark and, and evil as, as they progress, and some are relatively more benign. But overall, God grants us government for our well-being. Could a Christian work in politics? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. But the point is, our hope Our hope is hidden not in who wins elections. And trust me, I followed it very closely um, uh, without giving too much away. But I, you know, I I was very, I'm very engaged and very interested in politics. But ultimately, our hope isn't who wins elections. Our hope is in this weird little offhanded comment that, that seems to just not be of that much importance. A certain Jesus a certain Jesus who was dead, but Paul asserts is alive. And if Christ is raised from the dead, then we have been, we who have trusted in him have been forgiven of our sins. We have been born anew. The Holy Spirit dwells us inside of us. We are in union with God, the Father, and, and, and the Son, the Holy Spirit. Our eternity is settled. All of that because Christ is risen. And a day will come when all of the political wrangling, the machinations, the gamesmanship, the intrigue, the drama that's been going on, you know, since time immemorial, we see it right here in our text during the times of Rome and Judea and all of these things, all of that will be put to the side and there will be one political ruler. 
And there will be one king, and it will be the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who was dead and is now alive. Our hope is not in politics. The gospel is not politics. Secondly here, the good news is not the goods of this world. It's not what we call good, in other words, in, in the world, under, in our life under, uh, excuse me, under the sun. If there were ever one individual that Jesus loved and valued, it would be Paul. Am I right? I mean, Paul had to be a favored servant of, of Christ, and Jesus expressed the intention that he would preserve Paul's life and bring him to Rome so that he would testify for him there. But even if you're Paul, and this is, the, this is the thing I want us to see, even if you're Paul, this whole thing, this gospel thing, it's not about you. It's not about you. And, and don't get me wrong. I mean, Christ loved Paul. He loves all of his people. But the first lesson that Paul impressed on the early churches, do you remember what that lesson was? Discipleship, we'll call it Discipleship 101. After they planted the churches in Galatia, and they passed back through them. They, get, they delivered a message, and it was sort of the core of discipleship. It says, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples. That's discipleship, right? Encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must, we must enter the kingdom of God. So that's primary. That's one of the very first things that as Christians we're supposed to absorb before we move on to any, any greater acts of sanctification and, and moments of whatever, whatever deepening of our faith there is. The first thing we're supposed to understand is that it's through many tribulations that we enter the kingdom of God. Paul's in prison here. Paul is in prison. Hateful accusers surround him. He's appealed to Caesar you know, Caesar was a name they used for all of their rulers. Do you, do you know the actual follow-up, the, the second part of that name, Caesar, which, which Caesar this was that he was appealing to? Do you know his name? You do once I say it. Nero. You're like, oh, Nero, wasn't he the one that burned the, the Christians uh, like, like lanterns all along the, 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 the roads? They just lined them up on, on crosses and set them on fire with pitch, you know, so that they burn longer and give more light? Yeah, that's the guy. That's the guy. Now, at this point, he hasn't really emerged quite in that fashion yet. He'd, he was sort of in check at that moment. But, but that's what Paul has to look forward to. The good news of the gospel is not equivalent to a long, happy, safe life in this world. That, isn't that how we tend to define goodness? We think of, of goodness as just a, a trouble-free life. And I'm, I'm afraid sometimes that's what people hear when they hear the gospel offer. I think, and I don't know if that's misrepresentation on our part that we sometimes project that. It shouldn't be. But I think sometimes people hear the gospel as have your best life now. Be happy. Life will be good. Everything will go great. It's not really the gospel message, is it? I tend to agree with Dietrich Bonhoeffer because, well, because Dietrich Bonhoeffer agreed with the Bible. And uh, you, do you know who, you remember Dietrich Bonhoeffer? He was a, a, a martyr for the Christian faith during the Second World War. He was a German Christian. He opposed Hitler. They killed him like, what, two, three days before the fall of Germany? Yeah, he made it through the whole war and then like they, they hung him a couple days or something before Hitler uh, took his own life. But he said, he said, 
When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And that is absolutely true. That is absolutely true. Now, in its place, in that death, God offers us life. And the death isn't always literal death in that sense, but it's a death to self. It, it is a death to any, any obsession on our part with a happy, easy life. Now, does God sometimes give us way more mercies than we deserve as followers of Christ? Absolutely. There, there are days, do you ever pinch yourself? Because and, and, you know our brothers throughout the world suffer. We're praying right now for the persecuted church. Do you ever pinch yourself and say, why, Lord? In your providence, do I have it so good? Why do I enjoy so many tangible mercies in this life? Don't feel bad about those things. Praise God. Thank God for those things. But understand, that's not the good news. That's just God's mercies on top of everything else. The good news, though, is is that Christ is risen. Finally, the good news is not immunity from our enemies. It's not immunity from our enemies. I wish it were. Paul is able to outmaneuver his enemies there in Jerusalem of the Jerusalem hierarchy. Uh, he does, in fact, live to fight another day. But out of the frying pan into the fryer for him, or fire, isn't it true? You think about Paul's life from this point on. Is he ever not, you know, jailed or imprisoned or fighting wild beasts or, 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 or being shipwrecked in, out, out in the middle of the sea or being bitten by a viper and carried off to Rome? Everything. At every point along the way, he will still face enemies. This here today is a temporary victory. It's a temporary rescue from the Jewish leaders, but we can't read this as a triumphalistic sort of thing. Our enemies will face judgment, but Paul will still die as a martyr. Just as Stephen had died as a martyr, just as James had died as a martyr, as in fact all of the apostles, save for John. Yeah. And in this world, there will be times when it seems to us like the bad guys are winning. Do you ever have that feeling anymore? Is there an awakening feeling at times in your life that, hey, does it seem like the guys that are wearing the black hats are actually doing better? Than That's not a time to switch sides. That's just, a, it's just time to go, okay, that's, so that's what time it is. So that's, that's where we're leaving. Jesus told us truly, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have a comfortable, happy, no, I'm sorry. In this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Christ has overcome the world. He's the ruler, he is king. We are redeemed through his work in his name. We have confidence in his glory that we will share heaven with him forever and ever, that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. But what we also can be confident of is that while we are still in this flesh, we will still face the enemy of our soul. And that enemy of our soul will come in different forms, and some of those forms will be human and some otherwise, but but we will face that. That is part of life in this world. And being free of that, the idea that that's just going to evaporate, that's not our hope. That's not where our confidence is. That's not the gospel that our enemies are going to simply evaporate. Now, our enemies will be dealt with. Paul says this to the Thessalonians, and, and you can appreciate where it's, yeah, this is where Paul's coming from. He's facing enemies at every turn, and he knows the Thessalonian Christians are as well. He says, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, 
and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. Now, if you end there, you don't get the full import of, of what he's saying because it's, it's about the win. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So yeah, will we have escape from our enemies? We will. In this world, not so much. That's not, that's not the promise. But brothers and sisters, let us grasp what the world cannot Festus was able, in a parenthesis, to talk about the resurrection of Jesus as if it were nothing, as if it were just some kind of weird jibber-jabber. Oh, you know, somebody that's supposed to be resurrected. And that's all the more it meant to him. But we see that that is the heart of our faith. That is where our hope is. We know the resurrection of Jesus makes all the difference. It's not politics. It's not worldly goods or, or ease. It's it's. It's not freedom from our enemies in this life. Our hope is the living Christ. Like the hymn says, it's a new hymn of our time, and I love it. It says, what is our hope in life and death? Christ alone, Christ alone. What is our only confidence that our souls to him belong? Next time we sing that, can we mean that? Can we mean it with all our heart? Can we just take that in and realize that when it's all stripped away, that really is our only hope, the gospel, the gospel that saved us. If you're not with him, dear one, if you don't know Christ, then um, I ask you to think just for a moment, what is your hope? What is your hope? What is your confidence? What are you trusting in? What are, I, I can only assume that like most human beings, your hope is to have relative ease, um, relative health, escape from difficulty and trial, a long life, perhaps. And beyond that, maybe not a whole lot more, and then you die. And you may be hoping for a long dirt nap at that point. Um, I think that's where a lot of people have have, uh, placed their hope. You're kind of like Festus. You're kind of like Festus because this idea of Jesus, you've pushed it off right into your peripheral vision. You're aware that there was this person named Jesus, that he lived, and you know that some weirdos believe that he's risen from the dead. And you want to keep it there. You just, you just want to keep it off. You don't want to deal with it. You want to leave it there. It's just jibber-jabber to you. But I ask you to, to think about it, to consider it today. We proclaim to you that is the gospel. That, that parenthesis is, is actually the core of human history. It's, 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 it's the matter of life and death. Jesus Christ died for sinners. And not only did he die for those sinners, but in power he was raised on the third day. And he lives. He sits at the right hand of God. He is coming again. And that is the hope that we, that we hold out to you. And I just ask you to set those two hopes next to each other and ask yourself which is... Which is better? Hope for some mere happier existence now or the thought of eternal life with God forever? That is what the gospel holds out to you and I pray that you would take it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you, you are risen 
And we proclaim that and we believe that. Lord, help us. We are are but flesh. And we live in this world. And there are so many things that occupy us and, and, and keep us busy. And and, uh, and Lord, we, do, we experience mercies from you, goodness, kindness uh, on a daily basis. And it, but, but sometimes, Lord, it just, it, it just gets our eyes diverted from, from what really matters at its core. And we know at the end of the day, it's Christ alone. It's the living Christ. And, and Lord, thank you for him. Thank you for that hope that's alive within us. Thank you for eternal life that begins now as we come into that relationship with you. And we just pray, Lord, that you would bless those that don't have that life with, with uh, an awakening of their hearts, that, that their hearts would be made alive and that they would see the gospel and want that hope and that we would be able to convey it to them, Lord. Save all those, Lord, uh, we pray that, 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 we're, that we're sharing with and praying for. Pray that you would do a great work in this way. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.